My early interests were in politics and philosophy rather than science. Yet I became a scientist. I wanted to know how things worked, to get inside, as it were, and look at the machinery. Many would view science as being distinct from philosophy. I do not. The boundary between science and philosophy is poorly defined. And science needs philosophy. Without philosophical scrutiny, science is poorer. Consider the implications of the selfish gene. What does it mean? The concept of selfishness is as much philosophical as it could ever be scientific. Is it a metaphor? Or is it a testable scientific hypothesis? Is it a purely objective conclusion? Or a social judgment? The problems arise when we fail to see that the line between science and philosophy is at best a blurred one. So, is science free of political and cultural influences? Or is it curiosity-led and simply seeking the truth? Does it have a special window into what is truth and what is not? In 1990, I was proud to join the Medical and Life Sciences faculties at University College London. I had a joint appointment in the Department of Physiology and in Obstetrics and Gynaecology. UCL's reputation is worldwide for outstanding research and teaching. It has a proud tradition. UCL was established in 1826 in order to open up higher education in England for the first time to students of any race, class or religion. By 1878, it had become the first English university to welcome female students on equal terms with men. I gave some lectures in the Galton Lecture Theatre. It is so named after Sir Francis Galton, who was a distinguished scientist. He was also the father of the eugenics movement and the science, as he saw it, of improving the population by controlled breeding to increase the occurrence of desirable heritable characteristics. Galton believed that desirable human qualities were inherited and the population could be improved by selective breeding. But what would we mean by desirable and what would be improved? These are not scientific judgments. Eugenics became an academic discipline in many colleges and universities and received funding from many sources. In 1911, Galton left a substantial sum to UCL to establish a chair of eugenics. In 1963, the Francis Galton Laboratory of National Eugenics at UCL became the Galton Laboratory of the Department of Human Genetics and Biometry. The Galton Lab became part of the Department of Biology in 1996. The critical idea here was that we could define good traits and bad traits, good genes and bad genes. Galton himself was aware that these were subjectively loaded terms. 
Human beings have a variety of character traits. What makes any one of these objectively good or bad? In large part, this would be a subjective and highly contextual judgment. Galton was anxious to leave ethics out of the mix. In a seminal paper in the American Journal of Sociology in 1904, he said, We must leave morals as far as possible out of the discussion. So there you have it. He also says, Goodness or badness of character is not absolute, but relative to the current form of civilization. Some commentators are concerned that current developments in genetic, genomic and reproductive technologies are raising questions once again about the ethical issues of these technologies and their potential for introducing a new form of eugenics, screening out bad traits and screening for good ones. So what is wrong with this? If the technology is there, why not use it to improve mankind? The problem lies in the notion of improving. It implies that what is before the improvement is imperfect. It becomes discriminatory and potentially prejudicial. A working definition of science would be the systematic study of the structure and behaviour of the physical and natural world through observation and experiment. It seeks the truth through objective study of the world about us. But is it free of cultural and social influences? Could it ever be? I know of no observation of goodness or badness that would involve some kind of would not involve some kind of subjective judgment. I think it is a mistaken view that scientists work in a culturally isolated bubble. The ideas they produce, their hypotheses, cannot be entirely free of political and cultural influence. Whilst their work can challenge established views of the world about us, they are also influenced by those views. We can measure data objectively, but the objective tests of that data, what data to collect and how to collect it, and how it is interpreted, is influenced by preconception. It is influenced by ideas. What is worth measuring and why? Good science comes from understanding its limitations, bad science from ignoring them. Science is neither politically nor ethically neutral. Science, as a social activity, runs on priorities and interpretation, each of which has political and ethical significance. Priorities set by governments and funding agencies are often the major driver of scientific endeavour. Modern science is big business. Science is a competitive enterprise. Big groups, often involving international collaborations, compete for funding. And they compete for a platform to push their pitch. It is the story of science that is rarely told. We still have the image of the 
Boffin working alone in a laboratory, pushing the boundaries of what we know. But surely, I hear you say, science is objective. It sets about measuring things and testing ideas. The results, the data, surely must be neutral. But scientists do not work in a vacuum. Scientists are positioned, culturally at least, to view the world in the way they do. What we choose to measure and how we interpret the results has as much significance as the measure itself. Promotion and careers in modern academic institutions has more to do with the size of the funding a scientist can bring than any any intellectual merit. We are encouraged to think within the box rather than to challenge it. It is surely best to be honest about this.